Thank you, Steve. If you would turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13. I'm going to only preach from the first 13 verses, but I want to read the entire uh, prophecy. So we're going to read from verses 1 to verse 27. And I just want to remind you of where we just came from. I had Shane actually go back and retitle the sermon from last week. Because in the midst of preaching it, King of Glory just wasn't enough to actually capture, I think, what the sermon meant. And I also want to draw a direct link to the text in the series that we'll be going through today. Which the whole purpose of looking at Psalm 110 was seeing how God's promises in the past that from the distant perspective, everything looked like a mountain range. Kind of like if you're driving up to the mountains, it takes a little bit before you start seeing them. But once you start seeing the mountain range, you see this faint blue line that's just slightly elevated above the horizon. And as you get closer, it looks like this wall. But it's not until you actually drive up onto the mountain range that you see there's all these valleys. And that what you saw and what you might have thought was just one wall of mountains is actually several mountains with different peaks, different valleys. And that's the prophetic perspective that God's people talked about the future. And God's people were given prophecies of what would happen in the future. But the actual accomplishment of it Sometimes all the details and how all the different puzzle pieces fit together is something that we really have to wait until hindsight to see exactly what was meant by it. And we even see that in Isaiah. That prophecy that Steve just read was a prophecy against the Assyrians. And God was faithful to bring the judgment of it. And yet, Isaiah used it and talked about it in such cataclysmic terminology, using the heavens and the earth being in turmoil. To do what? He was giving a picture that how their judgment was just a small glimpse of what the day of judgment would be when God judged all the wicked. And the details kind of blended together that he talks about the judgment of the Assyrians and what God's going to do to them, which did come to pass, and yet he just naturally goes right into the day of judgment. And with all of it future, it looks like that wall, that it takes hindsight to see how the details all fit together. I want you to keep that in mind as we read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, and I'm going to read from 1 to 27, so hang in tight, and things are going to get a little weird. And he came out of the temple, that is Jesus. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, 
when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is out in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God had created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For as false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels 
and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth into the ends of heaven. This is the reading of God's holy word. You know, it's passages like these that cause us a lot of trouble. In the sense that most good Christians, it seems like, have an opinion on this text. Everyone seems to think it's very clear. And yet good Bible-believing Christians who all take the word of God as their sole foundation come up with different conclusions. And that shouldn't surprise us because it hasn't happened yet. There is a certain sense, and I'm not going to preach this as if I have 2020 vision on this text. Hindsight can give you that. I cannot give you perfect, perfect, crystal clear answers. And honestly, I don't think that's the point. There's a sense in which he's looking forward to the future. He's telling them when these things are going to happen. But there's a certain framework in which Jesus is answering their questions that colors the way he answers it. And also because since it's all future, there's a certain sense in which it's like that mountain range in which the present events, exactly the precise order of them, is kind of hard to determine. Which is why Jesus starts off with his first word and his final word, to be aware, to watch out. For false teachings, for false teachers, and from losing hope. You see, there's kind of two general angles that we that people come at this when they're focused on eschatology or the study of the end times. People either focus on it so much that it becomes this predominating thought and obsession, and I can almost guarantee you that the groups that make this their obsession, they end up going into heresy. Just look at the Jehovah Witnesses. You can look at that organization. They predicted the end of the world some 10 times before they finally gave up. Predicted the, I think the first prediction was in 1875. They predicted it in 1914, 1921, 1924. They predicted it in 1975, putting it, they thought, far enough out. And then 1975 came and went. They lost a third of their members, but they bounced back. They, they learned their lesson not to predict the end of the world over and over again. But it's not just circumstantial. It's not just by happenstance, but that that group that denies the divinity of Christ, and which is probably the reason why you know about them, is the same group that was focused and forged in the fires of focusing on the end times and making that their obsession. We don't have to get into Mormons. We don't have to get into Islam. All these groups, though, have the same story. But you know, there's something actually even more dangerous than that, if you can believe it. There's an equal error, which is to pretend that the final days, the day of judgment, is not coming at all. 
to live on this world and thinking that yes, sin and evil continues on, but surely God will never judge the world. We need to be honest with people to let them know that there will be a day when they stand before God and it'll happen either on their, after their deathbed or it'll happen on the last day when God will stand us before him and we'll have to account for all our deeds, good or evil. And let me just let you know that outside of Christ, the accounting, the scale will not be in your favor. A day of judgment is coming. And there's a, I had a conversation right after the last sermon. If we, this last sermon was past expectations from the Old Testament, what I would look like, like to look at this morning in this text is what is our present expectations? What's our expectations for this world and how things are going? And maybe you don't fit into either one of those groups. You don't obsess about the end times and you don't deny that judgment day is coming. But you just want to pull back and say, I'm kind of a, I'm not an amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial or dispensationalist or any of those other terms, whatever those labels are. Might not even get into naming what those exactly all are. But maybe you don't want to have one of those labels and you just say, I'm the panmillennial that I believe that everything's just going to pan out in the end. I don't want to have to worry about this stuff. How is it even relevant to my life? And to that, we need to have a sober pause and realize that God's people have always been a forward-looking people, a people that have looked forward and hoped in what God will do in the future. In the Old Testament, it looked like Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, where you see, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening the prisons to those who are bound. Listen, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. This is key to who Jesus is. And this is key to what Jesus' message is. That he proclaims, yes, freedom to those who follow him, but also to the rebellious, also to those who do not follow him, the day of vengeance and the day of wrath that is to come. You know, there still is a future day that we look forward to as Christians, that we are to hope in, that we are to say, and the constant Christian theme should be, come Lord Jesus, as we look at the sin and wickedness of our world, as we see disease take our loved ones, as we see death reign, and as we see it maybe even different conspiracies going on behind the scene, and it seems like there's different layers of evil throughout society that you cannot even possibly plumb the deaths of. Jesus gives his word for that reason. And all of theology, 
whether you're studying who God is, whether you're studying what he talks about and teaches us about the end times, all of it should lead to worship. That's your sign if you're studying God's word rightly. And if you're understanding the Bible rightly, is it leading you to worship? And maybe a second reason is so that you don't get led astray. That's Jesus's focus in this text. Did you not hear it start off at the very beginning? Those are his first words. Don't be deceived. And the reality is, we cannot exclude ourselves from society. We cannot isolate ourselves off and say that we're unaffected and that just because other people are not are deceived doesn't mean we can't be deceived. That's the purpose in this. There's just a couple bare minimum ones. Let's look at the framing. What's the framing of this? Let's look at things through their perspective. That's the first thing if we want to get this right, if we want to start studying things rightly. We need to look at the original audience, and this is true for every text, and we have to start off with, what did this mean to them? What did the disciples understand that Jesus was telling them? Let's look at verse 1. The disciples, Jesus is leaving the temple. He has just said that the temple is going to be destroyed right when he came into it, back in chapter 11 of Mark, saying that it'll be like the fig tree that he cursed that'll be destroyed. He's depicted its destruction. He's condemned the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and all the religious establishment. And his disciples just don't get it. And leaving the temple, they're just fixated on the beauty of the temple. And Jesus, on the way out, says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I think this should be a good moment to pause and just say that the fact that the disciples were taken in by the beauty of the temple, they were like tourists going through and seeing these magnificent buildings that were not something they saw every day. And it would have been the most beautiful building that was actually constructed by Herod the Great that they would have seen or been acquainted with. We get distracted by beautiful things, but... Look at what Jesus said. Jesus doesn't seem to be so captivated by the beauty of this building, of this architecture. Instead, he just pronounces the judgment upon it. And the question that they ask then in verse 4, when they finally get him in private and he sits down opposite on the Mount of Olives, being able to look down at the temple complex from the mountain, the disciples sit next to Jesus. And they ask them, When will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? First and foremost, what the disciples are asking about is what Jesus just said, which is the destruction of the temple. And they're asking, when? When is this going to happen? And they want 
clarity on this. And they ask for what signs, what will be the signs when these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus is going to give them, and he's going to answer that question. And where all the disagreement comes from is once we start reading from this point on, what things are referring to the destruction of the temple and what things are referring to the second coming of Christ? There's a when question to both of those. And there's a sign question to both of those. But fortunately, I don't have to tackle it all in one Sunday morning, so that's good. I don't have to do that. But I just want you to notice what they're asking and what they see. Matthew's gospel actually helps us here. Matthew 24, verse 3, phrases this question and showing that they said, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, it would have been like telling them that the White House will be blown up. Washington, D.C. will be decimated. It'll be on fire. If I told you that, would you not be expecting the end of America itself? Yeah, because the reason why is because Washington, D.C. is the representation of our government. It's the headquarters. So if I gave you a prophecy of it being destroyed, you could see where someone might, especially looking at the impressive buildings or someone who's living there, might be confused about exactly what time are you talking about that this must be the end of the world. And Jesus then gives a prophecy about both of these things. Unless we miss the importance of this, Jesus has two extended teachings in the Gospel of Mark. One in chapter 4 about the soils, about parables, and one here. So obviously, this is an important subject to Jesus, the end times. So that's their perspective. They're seeing the event and seeing this one mass, and they're asking, when will the temple be destroyed? When will the end of the world happen? What signs are going to happen that will indicate so that we'll know and be ready? And Jesus' answer is about that second part first, sort of. He gets us for what our persistent expectations should be. What should the persistent expectations be of the Christian life? He's talking to his disciples in verse 5 and says, See that no one leads you astray. Many will call on my name. I am he, they will say, they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Isn't it interesting that Jesus's first thing that he talks about is what the signs of the times are not? Look at these things. He says he's talking about the fact that there will be false teachers, that there will be false Christ, that there will be wars of nations against nations, 
that there will be earthquakes, natural devastation, famines. Aren't these the very things that get people to focus on the end times? It's things like this that are going on. When our current nation is at war, when looming war with Russia or with the Middle East or with someone else with China, North Korea, it's those moments which cause us to focus on the end, that the end must be near. But what Jesus is trying to say at the very beginning is that they don't be led astray. You see, it's common to humanity to, when thinking about especially end times issues, to look at their circumstances to gain a sense of what God is doing in the world, to look at their circumstances and try to read the tea leaves and try to figure out, is this the end? When in actuality, we're not called to look to our world to figure out where we're at in the historical timeline. What we're called to is to look to God and his words and the promises he's made to us. And we know that this happened in the disciples' own day. Acts chapter 5, verse 36, speaks to the issue that the Pharisees said that other Christs besides Jesus had arisen in that day. And that if Jesus is not the Christ, then just like all the previous would-be messiahs, the church would crumble. That in Acts chapter 8, we see Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church, killing people for the name of Christ because they follow them. Unless we restrict this just merely to the age of the disciples, we have time and time again warnings throughout Scripture that these sorts of things, wars, natural disasters, plagues, false Christ, false teachers, will all be persistent Till Christ comes again. Let me just read you uh, just a few samplings of this. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Peter tells us, But false prophets also arose among the people in the past. Just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And saying, verse 2, that many will follow their sensuality. When we see false teachers teaching false things and dividing the church, we should not be surprised. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This is interesting what he notes. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. What is it? What kind of difficulty? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. And it goes on and on. But did you catch that phrase? He said, in the last days. What days have we been living in 
since Christ was put on his throne in heaven. What did, what did Acts chapter 2, when Peter was quoting Joel, the day of the Lord, when he would pour out his Holy Spirit on the world and then judgment, what was he saying that we are in? He said that we have entered into the last days. And in these last days, we have, just like this, people not just going into false prophecies, following false prophets, but also people just living a sensual life, as if that we were in the days of Noah, thinking that God's not going to judge the world and we can live however we please. Is that not the world that we live in? Isn't it like the days of Noah? That first John chapter 2, verse 18, we typically think of when we say the Antichrist, we think of this figure in the future who's going to come and be opposed to Christ and bring the apocalypse. Well, I think there's legitimacy to that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That what we're looking at, 1 John 2, verse 18 says, children, what time is it? It is the last hour. Sorry for confusing anyone about what time it is. It is the last hour. And as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. What conclusion does this lead John to in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18? Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. What days are we living in? Times of war. Times of nations rising against nations. Time of false teaching. Times in which people be led astray, if possible, even God's own people being led into deception and destructive heresies. 1 John 4, 3 tells us what the Antichrist is. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. That those, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That's a lot broader of a definition than we're used to, isn't it? See, these things are the persistent things that mark Jesus' first coming and everything until the second coming of Christ. These are, as we're told in verse 8, but the beginning of the birth pangs. Part of the reason why I had Steve read Isaiah 13 is first because it uses that cosmic imagery of the, the whole universe being flipped on its head to describe the judgment of God on the last day seen in microcosm on the Assyrian Empire. But also because what did it say about how the judgment would hit Assyria? It'd be like birth pangs. Ladies, how do birth pangs hit you? It's sudden. It hits you. It's immobilizing. You had a time to prepare for it beforehand, but once it comes, it's here. That's the kind of way in which judgment will hit 
the unbelieving world. And it doesn't have to hit us like that. God's people have been prepared knowing that there is a day in ju of judgment in the future, and we're told to prepare for it. How? By living for the Lord, by confessing that he is Christ, and that there's no hope in anyone else save him. And there's part of the difficulty in looking at this phrase, the birth pains, is how far do we draw the analogy? Is it like the fact that birth pangs, that once it comes, it comes with greater frequency up until the second coming? Seems like the book of Revelation depicts that. But here I think it, we I think it's just restricted to, or at least that's the sense I get from this passage, that's restricted to the fact that it comes suddenly and hits you unexpectedly. And that's what he's trying to prepare his disciples for. Four. You know, the thing that no matter what you see about birth pains is that knowing that you have birth pains does not tell you the precise moment of the delivery. It just tells you that you know it's going to happen. That means no date setting allowed. Even if we're going through tribulation, which, by the way, it seems like tribulation is going to mark the entire period. And if we look throughout church history, we see exactly that. Tribulation marking the people of God from beginning to end. Wars and rumors of wars have never went away. Famines throughout the world have never went away. It marked the disciples' age, and it marks ours as well. Yet, these things do not tell us the precise moment of the delivery. You know what it tells us? It tells us that judgment is coming, and it is coming for sure. The point here is not really to answer the disciples' when question. This is a persistent expectation the people of God are to have, and they should not be surprised by suffering. But Jesus gets to signs for them in particular and shows them what this will look like in their own lives. Look throughout verse 9 through 13 and see, look how many times the word you comes up. He tells them once again, be on your guard, watch out, for they will deliver you to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and before kings and for my sake to bear witness before them. Who's he talking to here but the apostles? That all these things happen to them. Read the book of Acts. And you see in Acts chapter 5, the apostles, Peter and John, rejoicing that they get to be counted worthy of the sufferings of Christ and suffer for the name of Christ. We see Saul persecuting the church. We see Paul coming under conviction, turning to Christ. And yet, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29, Paul is sure to say, I'm an apostle of Christ. How do you know? Look at this long list of sufferings which I have went through, that authenticate my calling. 
What should be our personal expectations for this world? John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19 tells us, I think, at least an idea, that if the world first hated me, it will also hate you on my account. That, verse 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. What are you expecting for the future? What type of victory should we have? Should Does this mean that we need to be pessimistic about the future? You know what we see throughout history? Tribulation ebbs and tribulation flows. It comes and it goes. And every time it comes, God's people seem to think the end is nigh. It's about to happen. And then it goes away. No matter what our circumstances speak to us, Christ is still king, and he's king over the nations, and he rules them to his own ends, and he uses even the sufferings of his people to lead to their salvation for their good and for God's glory. Is that not the picture we have in Romans 8, 29 through 31 or 33? That what will separate you from the love of God will tribulation, will distress, Will turmoil, will persecution, will anything be able to separate you from the love of God? Absolutely not. Does the fact that we suffer mean that God's plan is failing? No. Actually, if we look at Christ and his mission, we see that part of our success in the world is seeing how God spreads his church despite the suffering through the suffering, to accomplish his ends in the world. What is to be the mission of his people in the midst of this suffering? What's the thing that the end times when we see suffering, what's it to focus our minds on? First, knowing that these things must be taking place, these wars, rumors of wars, that Jesus was preparing his disciples for a not too immediate first, second coming. But the other thing he was preparing his disciples for was the task that they were going to be given. And verse 10 is so key on this point. And when the telling them that they're to bear witness and that the gospel must be first proclaimed to all the nations. You know, in Greek, you can do this. That whole sentence is backwards. It's flipped. To all the ethnicities, to all the people groups, not to nation states, to all the people groups. First, in order, the gospel must be preached. This happened in the disciples' own lifetime. They constantly referred to the fact, this is the way Romans ends. Romans 16, verse 26, says that this gospel, which has been made known through the prophetic writings, verse 26, has been known, made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God 
to bring about the obedience of faith. Hebrews chapter 9 says that it's appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. Right there we have our dual expectation. We know that God's word must be first preached throughout all the nations, and you know what? That happened in the apostles' lifetime throughout the Roman world. But that's been just a microcosm historically of what has happened since. The disciples would be blown away to know that the gospel went across the globe to Asia, to China, to the Philippines, throughout Africa, throughout South America, to as far distant land as the United States of America. The gospel has spread. The mission of the church is defined by the proclamation of the gospel. The method is preaching the gospel, proclaiming it to other people. The message is the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. The scope of the mission, all people groups. The context is in the midst of a hostile world. If your end times view eliminates any of those things, that's how you can tell if your expectations for the present or for the future are going to be false. Do you look forward to a day when the gospel being preached that it will no longer need to be preached to all the nations? Well, the next step is judgment. Do you see a day in which everyone knows and that maybe that you'll be in the context of a more pleasant world in which suffering won't be really a problem for God's people? The New Testament prepares God's people for living in a hostile world that rejects them and we're given this last word, at least last for our purposes, in verse 13, where Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. What's our hope for the future? What's our hope for the future? Our hope for the future is not in ourselves. For we're told in Mark chapter 4, Already in Jesus' other second longest discourse, what kinds of people fall away? Verse 16 of Mark chapter 4 says, And those who were sown in the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while, then when tribulation, persecution arises, on account of the word of the gospel, immediately they fall away. Other people are thrown off by the pleasures of this world, getting distracted. But some, the word of God is planted in good soil, which bears some 60, some 100-fold fruit. 
we have to ask ourselves, what causes us to endure to the end? We've already been told. It's God's Spirit. Jesus has sent his Spirit into the world to save his people, to make a people for himself, to give them a name that they belong to him. And as long as we find ourselves in Christ, as long as we're looking to him in faith alone, our end is sure. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, your word that has prepared us for the future. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your words to see things from your perspective, that we will not be shaken or thrown off by the sufferings of this world because we know it's coming. And Lord, we know personally that those who follow you will not be loved by the world, but will be hated by the world. Lord, may you give us the endurance we need. Lord, we look to your Holy Spirit to give us a firm confidence that we belong to you and that you'll keep us to the end. And we thank you that he who started a good work in us will bring it to completion. And Lord, I thank you that we have this opportunity to study this topic. And I pray that as we continue to go through this most difficult text in the Gospel of Mark, that your people would gain clarity and that we would be on guard for the future and that we'd be prepared to proclaim the gospel whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.